Hi, everyone. Welcome to Trader Chats, unique perspectives from seasoned traders. I'm your host, Imran Laka, founder of Options Insight and 20-year professional options trader. As you might know, I became a trading mentor about three years ago, but I thought these conversations would be a great way for my students to gain valuable perspectives from some of the professional traders that I know and respect. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Trader Chats, everyone. Um, as you know me, Imran Larka from Options Insight, but I've got an all-star cast lineup today for my Q3 roundtable. I've got Darius Dale here from 42 Macro. I've got Andreas Steno Larson from the Daily Briefing, you may have seen him, or the Blockworks Macro Trading Floor. I've got Tony Greer from TG Macro, and of course, my friend Brent Kachuba from Spot Gamma. How are you doing, guys? Awesome. Good. Awesome, man. Super excited to be here. Great, great to have you. So um, for those of you who watched our Q2 roundtable, that was amazingly received, and we felt we better do another one for Q3 because... To be honest, things aren't quite as simple as they were three or four months ago to call this market. So I think everyone kind of needs to, you know, put their heads together and, and, and you know, I think this hopefully will be helpful for people. So, so away we go. Um, I'll give you a quick walkthrough of what happened since we last spoke. Um, so if we think about what we were saying in Q2, uh, we were sounding the alarm on risk assets, basically, in Q2. Um, equities since then have dropped on, on S&P from about 4,600 down to 3640-ish before the most recent bounce. Um, bonds have been more receptive to uh, recession concerns. So we've seen some rallies in the bond market uh, and we've seen further inversion of that curve, uh, of the yield curve on two tens. 75 basis point hikes coming from the Fed in the last two meetings have kind of anchored that front end. But obviously the bond market really starting to price in recession fears. Um, commodities have shaken out some speculative positioning. Obviously, that was the first, that was the great performer in Q1. Uh, so you've seen a bit of a wipeout in ags and metals, flushing out some positioning there. Uh, commodity within commodity complex, energy has obviously been more resilient as the supply concerns are a bit more acute there. Obviously, we've got Tony here to help you know clear all that up for us. Uh, the dollar wrecking ball has obviously been in play. Uh, Bank of Japan managed to keep the yen pretty depressed. Uh, via their yield curve control, and the energy crisis has thrown Europe into stagflation, which has been bad for the euro, with the ECB somewhat cornered. Uh, finally, for me, crypto um, has been dragged down, obviously with the macro weakness but and the, and the liquidity environment tightening, uh, but the credit crisis that we saw in crypto on the back of what happened with Luna and the 3AC debacle and just a, a massive amount of leverage getting wiped out there has led to mass liquidations and it's probably left only the diehard crypto investors in that space right now. So that's still picking up the pieces and sentiment really beaten down in that space. So anyway, that's what's happened in Q in the last quarter. Uh, I guess what we're trying to figure out here today is what might happen next. Uh, the title of this episode is called, Is the Bottom In Yet? Which is probably the question on all our minds. Uh, and for the sake of consistency from our last round table, I'm gonna hand over to Darius for maybe just to set the stage for us of what his outlook is going forward. Uh, and then we can drill down into the specifics. Over to you, my man. Yeah, thanks, Imran. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So uh, I'll be quick in terms of uh, outlining our views. Um, they're more cycle related. Um, so we've been in this inflation cycle upturn uh, that's been more aggressive 
uh, and protracted than just about anybody expected with maybe my friends, uh, Jim Bianco uh, over there in Chicago. Uh, as a function of A, we are likely to be in a liquidity cycle downturn um, that in our opinion is likely to be deeper uh, and more protracted than uh, what's priced into the market. Uh, as a function of B, uh, we're likely to be in a growth cycle downturn that is likely to be deeper, more protracted uh, than what consensus GDP estimates imply. And then as a function of C, we're likely to be in a profit cycle downturn uh, that's likely to be deeper and more protracted than uh, consensus earnings estimates imply. So um, when you add up A, B, C, and D, our outlook for risk assets is, is generally uh, unfavorable. Um, obviously, we like you know different sectors and style factors from a dispersion perspective, but generally speaking, we do not necessarily believe the lows are in. Mm -hmm. Andres, how about you? I mean, if we look at it, this is probably the biggest interest rate shock in modern history when you look at it in momentum terms. Uh, over the past 12, 18 months, we've seen the biggest increase in interest rates uh, that we've seen in, in many decades. Uh, and if you look at forward-looking models based on interest rate sensitivity, then I guess uh, PMIs could be headed as low as 35 to 40 when we look into the first uh, half of next year. Uh, so to me, it's still a no-brainer to um, to play risk assets from the short side, given the bounce that we've seen lately, as a consequence of growth slowing down more than price then. And, and on the bonds view, I mean, you guys, I think, have both been publicly saying that you're kind of bullish bonds. You started allocating uh, in your various portfolios. I mean, do we think inflation has really peaked enough for that to be a safe trade, to be getting into the bond trade now? Um, do you think there's one more test down in terms of bonds or, or is, that, is that a trade where we should be really piling in now? I can start with that one. Um, if we look at the yield curve right now, uh, I guess we have kind of a party in the front and, and the business in the back of the yield curve, right? Uh, given that the front end of the yield curve is very inflation focused, while the long end of the yield curve has started um, trading the, the growth narrative. Uh, and I think that's the playbook for Q3. Um, it may be that the Fed will have to hike more than priced very short term. I think that's a likely scenario, but it will lead to an even bigger inversion of the yield curve than what we've already seen in my opinion uh, and therefore i still like to be long the long end of the yield curve as a consequence of growth collapsing during this quarter mm -hmm. and i'll just say uh just to quickly follow up our bullish bias on bonds has less to do with inflation peaking and more to do with our perception uh, of the fed's resolve to get inflation back to its two percent target um you know if you go even just going back to this sort of what we believe is a misunderstood uh, fomc meeting um, you know, there are three things that I think are, are very important that occurred in that in that catalyst that give us incremental confidence in, in that view that the Fed is going to do whatever it takes uh, to borrow from some uh, Draghi. So number one, uh, yet the vote for the 75 basis point hike was unanimous, despite the Fed adding two new members to the FOMC and despite um, Kansas City Fed President Esther George's dissent last month. Uh, number two, uh, Powell was very dismissive when it talked about um, their, you know, the rising fears of an actual recession. Um, really citing the you know the still overheating labor market uh, kind of as their um, as their guiding light on that, and also reiterating that uh, their price stability, their maximum employment mandate is is conditional on their price stability mandate. Uh, and then lastly, the Fed wants growth to slow. I mean, it's already baked into the summary of economic projections. Powell reiterated that as much uh, last month, and so it's very unlikely that they're going to back off of, of the policy tightening too soon uh, and reinflate inflation expectations. Uh, as a function of the growth slowdown that they already see coming. 
Uh, TG, Brent, you want to weigh in on this at all? Sure. Just because you mentioned me first, I'll, I'll weigh in a little bit, Imran. Um, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what, what both Darius and Andreas were saying about the economy. I'm, I'm not an economist, though. Um, I'm trying to trade the market. I mean, I see that we're, we're, we've got this battle going on right now between, you know, the inflationary forces of the commodity markets and the obvious deflationary forces of this huge, you know, economic setback that we're wading through right now. Um, that's likely to get worse before it gets better in terms of, a, you know, market dynamics and tactical trading setup. I see a lot of signals where we are likely due to bounce further before we turn back lower. And that's just from having experience with treacherous bear markets and knowing that the, um, you know, reversion rallies are really, really treacherous and really, really can can you know, knock a lot of bears out of the game. And I feel like we're getting close to that scenario. If you've seen where, um, you know, S&P futures positioning is, you know, it's as short as they were during the lockdown slide and during the sell-off in 2015. Um, you know, when you look at sentiment indicators, you know, from AAII bull index to CNN fear and greed, you know, everything is still very much in the fear side. And I feel like, you know, the sentiment that I get off of Twitter is very similar. So I'm not shocked that the bounce in the S&P, you know, off of the lows through the 50 day to the 100 day right here at 4100. I think that we've got room at least up to 4300 before this short covering rally is over. It has been a huge retracement in my trade, which is the great rotation where I believe commodities will outperform technology. So that if with that retracement, as we price in less inflation, potentially deflation, technology rears its ugly head again and jumps out in the lead in the last couple of weeks. So my trade's on its back and retracing a little bit. I've got my natural resources into moving averages, but those are the trades that I'm sticking with for the rest of the year. That's fair. Oh, Brent, you got anything for me? Yeah, I, I would just add to that. The I felt like the positioning was in place for a rally to take to take place you can see just puts kind of coming off vol coming off into the fomc and so i just felt like while you know darius and andres do have a much better read on macro obviously i'm not going to attempt to delve too much on that that just no news was good news or just lack of negative overly hawkish sort of output was just going to lead to this kind of response uh sort of like you know the, the proverbial pushing a beach ball underwater right so we kind of just bounced up to this neutral zone now and in, in far as the options positioning goes. And I think in a way, even sentiment, I mean, uh, there's a lot of people here who watch stuff like HKD and uh, some of these other meme stocks. These things are all still moving, you know, like in a risk on like pe people are waiting to take risk, I, I feel like. Um, and so I think all of us would agree that in general, bottoms come with, you know, just fear and loathing and sort of, you know, people wanting to wash their hands of of assets in general and, and 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 it seems like this has been you know when can i buy the dip can can you please give me the all clear and so maybe that plays into this idea that people are misreading the fed it's just because we're all looking for the opportunity to misread the fed to say okay now is when i can finally buy that that low right so um so i just sort of would echo i guess a little bit off of what tony was saying there too in that you know it's clear there is a risk on bias i think just just watching the way some stuff is trading Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Tony on sentiment got very beaten up. And, and you see that, though, right? I mean, 
you have you didn't have to be a genius three to six months ago to be relatively cautious, right? And think that this market had some downside. And then in that dynamic, you're going to get ebbs and flows of extreme bearishness and then people getting a bit squeezed. And we're going through one of those episodes, right? Um, the only thing I'd add to like Andreas's point on the yield curve and stuff, yeah, I mean, twos tens are at like minus 35 right now, which is kind of the lows of the cycle so far. You know, that could get to minus 100 before this is done, basically, right? I mean, apparently in the 70s, it got to minus 200, right? And, you know, this that's probably the closest playbook to anything we've seen. Like, we haven't seen stagflation, and we know Europe's kind of already in stagflation, right? So I think people need to kind of rebase their expectations about where this thing could actually go. And maybe that is a safer trade to have that flattener on than just to have an outright long bonds on, right? Because if we do start to get inflation data that surprises people to the upside and you know Darius some of your things that you look at show that the momentum of sticky CPI median CPI you know the market's saying the data the, the Fed's saying the data dependent now right in theory that should add to volatility and make every incremental data point live and and the ability for it to move market should be greater because we don't have that kind of umbrella that the Fed has put up to say, this is what we're doing, right? We are now data dependent. So I think there's room for quite a lot of volatility, particularly in the rates market. Um, and then how that plays into rotation within the equity market and the commodity markets remains to be seen. But but I think we could be in for quite a choppy um, next few months, right? Um, anyway, moving on. Um, so what about, so let's focus on commodities. Cause obviously super, super honored to have you join the panel, Tony, uh, being, being the resident commodity expert. So on that commodities point, um, I would just generally ask, we've seen a bit of a flush out, right? In ags, in metals, energy's held up relatively well till now. Um, do you feel that the kind of 2008 analog where metals led the way down as recession was coming, is the most likely where now the energy complex is going to follow suit as, as it's going to be hard to avoid a recession? Or, or do you think we're looking at something different? Man, this is a tricky one, Imran. This is, you know, this is a really tricky one for me. That's, well, that's what I'm here for, mate. Ask yeah, hard questions. You know, it's, it's still, it's still <laughs> that, battle, that battle going on now between how low, how slow is the economy going to be for how long, right? We just notched our second quarter of GDP. The market is obviously pricing in a recession, no matter who defines it as what. That's what we're dealing with, right? The energy markets have pulled back. They're all into support, but they don't want to break down for several reasons, Imran. You know, number one, nobody has spare capacity to throw at this market if they need to control the price on the upside. We just saw that, you know, out of the OPEC meeting today, they agreed to 100,000 100, barrel per day increase for September. That was extraordinarily light compared to, you know, the hikes that they've been able to put up in the past. Um, we've seen that their capacity at OPEC is dwindling. Um, you know, I just saw a rig count in Saudi Arabia. They're down to 31 rigs from, you know, their normal conditions of around 75. So I don't know how they're going to pump a lot more oil out of the ground. Um, and then you've got the sort of tactical side of it where, you know, gasoline open interest has fallen to levels that we haven't seen in 10 years. There is no spec position on the long side whatsoever to draw a bullseye on, you know, to say maybe this is the next shoe to drop to really spill oil down $10. Um, and because of that positioning, the fundamentals are staying alive. Gas demand is strong. In fact, we've got record gas demand here in the U.S. And 
that's the battle that we're having right now. It's really the physical market versus the perception of where the economy is. And I personally don't know where it's going to shake out. You know, my my gut tells me is that we may break down. They may finally get to the oil market. They may get to gasoline and crack them below their 200-day moving averages. I doubt that is going to change the trend. You know, there may be some shorts piling in and, and positioning on top of that. But the fact remains, you know, we've got record low inventories across inventory locations. We've got a backwardated market that's just less backwardated than it was three weeks ago or six weeks ago. And that tightness continues to persist and shine through. So until we see a situation where, you know, maybe spreads head toward contango or there's some kind of reversal in, you know, the U.S. energy policy, which seems to be fast and furious toward net zero as soon as possible, unless there's a pivot there, we're going to continue to contend with super tight fossil fuel markets. We're going to have this battle royale in the winter between Russia and Europe about what, you know, how much natural gas is they're going to get. And, you know, until that main event plays out, I'm really, really loath to give up on my commodity bullishness. Doesn't mean I'm not going to trade around it, but I'm going to maintain a bullish posture toward commodities given these conditions. Hmm. I mean, uh, the question I, the thing that surprised me the most, to be honest, was how, how ags have got destroyed. Because natural gas feeds into fertilizer prices, which feeds into food supply, right? So can you shed some light on that? Because I'm clueless about that, right? Like why why yeah. have ags been so battered? The best answer I can come up with, Imran, is the Federal Reserve can print wheat and corn. <laughs> right. Because coming out of coming out of the tightening meeting, you know, we went into that with, you know, a really serious global food supply shortage building up. We had, you know, wheat prices into the teens, corn at ten dollars. And as soon as the Fed started pivoting toward tightening and the economy showed signs of slowing, grain prices returned to where they were before the Russia invasion. Exactly. Right. So with that, with natural gas at seven and a half dollars, seven seventy five last sale, it's really difficult to reconcile how grain prices have made it all the way back. I can tell you that ammonia prices have barely budged. Right, yeah. ammonia prices are up eight x. You know, maybe they were up ten x four weeks ago, and maybe they're up eight x right now. So there's really hasn't been a reprieve to speak of in the fertilizer space. Yeah. Fertilizer names are starting to perform a little bit better than the natural resources field right now. So mm -hmm. I've got an eye on that with Mosaic and CF just recently reporting good earnings and rallying. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree with you, Imran. It's really difficult for me to reconcile the grain prices where they are now. Um, you know, gun to my head, I'm a buyer of the grain dip because I don't see natural gas situation relieving itself anytime soon. Yeah. All right. Good. I'm glad you're as confused about that as I am. Early. Early. <laughs> Early. Some comfort. Anyone else want to weigh in with with uh, on the commodity story? Yeah, I I can add a bit on uh, on the natural gas story and the fertilizer story because usually you see a pattern uh, of a time lag between the change in price in natural gas to the change in, in price in fertilizers, and I think it has to do with the average hedging horizon um, of the, uh, um, the average um, farmer basically. Uh, so. 
there is a time lag between the increase in, in the natural gas price before we see it in food prices. Uh, and secondly, it's worth uh, noting that uh, the price of natural gas in, in Europe uh, was even higher than today if we look back in December last year. Uh, so at least in that part of the world, uh, we're basically accustomed to, to, to such natural gas prices already. Uh, mm-hmm. But the interesting point in relation to uh, the demand side on energy is that the um, demand is extremely price inelastic. Um, um, to just uh, give you a bit of anecdotal evidence, uh, the price of electricity is up around 1,000% in Germany. And if we look at the latest live data, the usage of electricity is down in between 2 and 2.5%. Two and That's how price inelastic it is. Wow. Or even if the price explodes on energy, it doesn't mean that people don't consume energy. It runs in the veins of right about every corner of this economy. Mm-hmm. Was yeah, it, it looked like last week, right? That that London paid record energy, something like five thousand times their normal normal rate, right? In the heat wave. Yeah, otherwise we would have had a blackout or something, right? Is that indicative of what's going to happen in the winter? Then you have these, you know, colds and. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to the winter. I mean, they're collecting firewood in Germany, right? You know, I mean, Dutch TTF goes much higher than here, and the, and the utilities are going to try to shy away from paying those prices for base load power. And man, I don't know where they're going to pivot to get it. Yeah. And I actually, so I was listening to Andreas, you and I talked to Dean Kernut. Uh, I just listened to that podcast. I thought it was a great one. And, and he was saying that, you know, could end up with a situation where because energy prices just don't come down anytime in the near term, that you just end up with this extended you know, 5% rate of inflation. So basically getting inflation from nine to five is super easy, but getting it from five to two is really difficult. And I thought that was, you know, when he says it, you're like, oh, that sounds obvious, right? But it's super insightful. And so I don't know, and I'd be curious to kind of kick it back to you guys, like, you know, how does the Fed sort of deal with that type of a situation where I don't think we just leave Europe out, right? We're going to keep trying to supply them with energy as we can. So that just creates kind of stress in the West, I guess. Darius, you got anything you want to chime in with on the commodities? Yeah, story? yeah. So we'll go back to Brent because I think you, you bring up an interesting point about the Fed's response to all this. Um, you know, before we get back to commodities, I'll just say that, you know, I think the Fed is very clearly taking the long game as it relates to their policy guidance, right? Like, I think we all can sort of, you know, guess, you know, just by looking at the time series that, you know, a year from now, inflation is going to be much lower, but much lower you know, is it much lower at 2% or is it much lower at 4%, 5%, 6%? And that's the real question there. Um, and so if you take the word, the Fed's uh, guidance on their own sort of face value, the Fed is calling for two, uh, 2.7% core PCE by the end of next year, uh, which is a beat down about 210 basis points um, from where it is, you know, the most recent month in June. We've never seen a 210 basis point decline in core PCE inflation on an 18-month forward time frame um, without having to go through a recession. You know, core PC doesn't just magically go back to, to, to target, um, as particularly given all the sort of structural dynamics that are influencing the, 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 the shift higher in the trend inflation rate. You have deglobalization. You have um, the, the, the dramatic you know, undersupply of labor, particularly here in the U.S. You have a structural undersupply of commodity prices. All these things aren't going to go away on that time frame, that time horizon that the Fed has outlined. So it's very likely that, um, going back to Brent's discussion, or Brent's question, it's, it's likely that they're going to have to tighten for longer. Um, just kind of real quick on this commodities thing. I thought it was, I did some work on this in preparation for our discussion. You know, I thought it was really interesting. Like we all assume that like, because there's a recession and then obviously it destroys and erodes demand that commodity prices have to fall. 
And that's typically the case. Uh, but one thing I thought was pretty interesting is that we've seen crude oil rise in price throughout the duration of three of the past seven recessions. You had the 93, 90, uh, 73 to 75 recession. That was the OPEC oil embargo. <laughs> Yet 1980 it rose in the 1980 recession, then it rose in the 1990 to 91 recession. It actually rose in price for the first eight months of the global financial crisis before collapsing uh, alongside everything else in July 08. And if you go back to July 08, we saw stocks initially take that decline, that accelerated decline in commodity prices as quite positive and quite favorable. Um, you saw stocks rally kind of into the um, kind of into the late summer, early fall of 2008 before ultimately collapsing, you know, kind of in October. So. Um, you know, I think I remember, you know, markets well, don't rhyme. Yeah, history doesn't ever repeat, but it rhymes. And the pattern of human behavior and, and kind of wanting to FOMO at, at local lows in the market and ultimately getting stopped out uh, at local highs in the market, that's something that'll always be with us when we're trading these bear markets. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thanks for that, Didi. Um, so now that moving on from kind of commodities, so obviously the strong dollar has been one of these sort of headwinds, right, to that commodity story a little bit. Now, obviously, last year, we saw the dollar and commodities rallying together. But as we started to get recession being priced in, the dollar continuing to advance, that almost became the next problem and the next headwind. And do, do we think this dollar pullback that we've seen in the last week or two, is, is that just what it is, a pullback? And, and what is the outlook going forward for the dollar? I can maybe start on the dollar outlook. Uh, I remain very positive on the dollar. Um, and the reason uh, is twofolded. Uh, I think there are two major sources of dollar liquidity worldwide, one being the Federal Reserve and the second being global trade uh, as a source of the velocity of dollar liquidity because the US basically exports dollars via the trade deficit on a running basis. So if we get a shrinking global trade pattern over the next couple of quarters. That is a source of declining dollar liquidity right there. And we know the intention of the Fed when it comes to dollar liquidity um, over the next couple of quarters as well. So I guess we have more or less um, penciled in both of the sources of dollar liquidity uh, being negative over the next couple of quarters. So to me, that's a big bull signal for the dollar against most other currencies. Mm -hmm. TG? Yeah, I would, I, I, yeah oh, I would just add that you know, we're, we're very much sellers of the the euro um, versus the dollar at, at pretty much every lower high in that cross for for the you know for the medium term uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the euro as as a currency and asset tends to be more correlated by to growth dynamics uh, to its own growth dynamics uh, rather than interest rate differentials. So um, it's our view that Europe is is likely heading into recession. We just got uh, pretty rancid uh, retail sales uh, print out of um of the eurozone this morning. Um, obviously, the PMIs we've gotten this week are largely confirming a lot of that weakness as well. And then number two, it's it's a it's a really interesting time to be a currency investor because you have some pretty material sort of shifts in things like terms of trade that tend to be kind of more um, you know secular factors for driving currencies, right? Like you have a significantly ne uh, negative terms of trade shock to the eurozone that is effectively being capitalized or it's capitalizing our terms of trade improvement. I mean, if you think about, you know, LNG shipments, increased gearing exports, et cetera, coming out of the U.S. heading heading um, um, eastern. So um, to me, I think that's a um, you know, pretty interesting setup in the sense that, you know, a lot of what's driving the dollar higher from a liquidity perspective, as Andreas highlights, is actually being sort of further enhanced by these more sort of, um, you know, esoteric currency fundamentals. Just on that euro point, I mean, I agree. I've been bearish euro for months and, I, and I'm a seller of rallies, too, but I found it interesting that the um, Bund BTP spread has kind of stopped breaking higher. 
So maybe Andreas, thoughts on the anti-fragmentation tool? Where are they going to cap that spread? Is it going to be effective? Because I, to some extent, I feel like they're cornered. Um, but yields haven't gone through 250, right? That spread. So is that is that a good thing? I mean, forget about this new TPI tool. Uh, they're going to use the old tool, uh, but they're not going to tell us. Um, if you look at the data from the last couple of months uh, on the reinvestments in the pandemic purchase program, they've basically tilted those reinvestments towards Italy uh, and away from Germany. Um, and it's a very clear pattern over the past uh, four to eight weeks. So they're going to use the old tool and they're not going to tell us. Uh, and it's been quite effective if you look at the price action in, in, in recent weeks. Uh, the question here is obviously to which extent the Germans will accept this. Uh, I think they will accept it for now due to the fact that the Germans are worst off in the current natural gas crisis. Uh, and they're actually begging uh, at least Spain uh, for more resources in that regards. Uh, so for now, I think they will basically shake hands and um, try and uh, and strike a deal, um, sending gas northwards, uh, but money southwards in a bond perspective. Okay, and uh, TG, you got any any thoughts on the dollar here? Just that, just kind of that my you know maybe it's just the way I kind of perceive the narrative, but my you know the strength in the dollar for me has been uh, you know combustion of the EU story the entire time. You know, like I can't. It's hard for me to draw a circle around you know another currency except maybe the Aussie dollar that deserves to have been set back the way the euro has. And you know, like I said, I, I got my popcorn out for the main event this winter. When you see, you know, first of all, what happened to Sri Lanka with an ESG score of 98, um, we're heading into a winter now where they are at the mercy of Vladimir Putin sending gas through the pipeline, and they're actually actively looking at potential other sources of energy. So my opinion is that if they don't go ahead and and restart nuclear plants um, ahead of a potential whatever cold spell beyond normal and cold conditions we run into this winter that spikes this whole crisis into reality. I think at that point you could see, you know, massive unrest across Europe and, and the Euro under even deeper pressure that it's under now. And I think that we haven't gotten to that moment yet. So I just, I'm just adding that, that I feel like we're kind of watching, um, I don't know, we're watching uh, George Foreman fall in the rumble in the jungle and, you know, it taking forever for him to go down. And then all of a sudden, the Europe is going to hit the canvas and we're going to know because the headlines are going to be absolutely atrocious coming out of there. So yeah, I, I think that we still have that in ahead, ahead of us. I wouldn't be surprised to see 0 0.8 on the euro at some point, right, by the end of the year. It wouldn't surprise and If me. not, talk about a complete, uh, you know, breakup of the EU. How, how are they going to survive on, on the same overruling energy policy if it starts to break up you know, civilization the way it is doing now, right? Like th this is so on the precipice of disaster. I'm really, really on edge here about what could happen there. And then the other thing driving the dollar to some extent is the dollar yen, right? So you always had Bank of Japan with their Yoko control. There's a lot the of the, you know, a lot of the pressure has been taken off with the yields move, right? And we've seen that reversal in dollar yen. Clearly there was a big macro trade out there. It seems to be getting unwound a little bit, right? But we had a decent bounce in the last 24 hours. Um, on the back of yields moving back the other way. So, it, Andreas, probably a good one for you because I know you've got the position on. Um, thoughts on dollar yen? Is it just is it just a play on where where US yields go? And and how are you thinking that through right now? Well, um, I actually think it's a good trade still to be long the yen 
um, potentially versus the euro instead of the dollar. Uh, and the reason is that Bank of Japan uh, will receive all of the tailwind needed during the second half of the year, if I'm right on my uh, growth outlook, because they've essentially um, turned into a uh, contrarian central bank in the sense that they uh, have a very tough time when there is a booming economy around the globe with high interest rates as a consequence, while they uh, suddenly turn into a relatively more hawkish central bank versus others in uh, periods of distress in financial markets. Uh, so they've actually emphasized the cycle of the Japanese yen with the yield curve control. Every time there is a booming global economy, the yen is clearly the worst currency to own. But every time there is a downturn globally, the yen is clearly the currency to own. It's been that way forever, but they've just emphasized that trend with the yield curve control. So it seems like euro yen short is like a high octane version of euro dollar short, basically. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Might have to look one at thing, one on. thing I would just quickly add on dollar yen. I mean, I'm looking at the model now. We all sort of have the same model in terms of the interest rate differential between uh, U.S. Treasuries and, and, and JGBs, and you know, right now we're talking about either a dollar yen rate that is about five big figures too heavy or too 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 overpriced or a 10-year treasury yield that's about 50 basis points underpriced. So I'm not sure how that gets resolved, but ultimately uh, we know that the, the markets, you know, the, there's a divergence in, in, in FX and, and fixed income markets that ultimately has to get resolved in the next few months. And I think just based on our views on Fed policy, that's probably going to get resolved uh, in the direction of stronger dollar. Sounds like an RV trade there, mate. Mm -hmm, it does. <laughs> uh, Brent, you got anything on that? I do not. I'm staying out of this one. <laughs> All right. No worries. Um, you know, the, the, I guess the only thing kind of I would add looking at vol wise, you know, you, you had a pretty nice opportunity a few months back to buy FX vol that was pretty cheap, single digit type numbers. Uh, and that did reprice quite a bit higher. Uh, kind of topped out, you know, with, with, the, with the euro breaking parity has come in a little bit. So you likes of sterling, likes of euro dollar vol have come in. Japanese yen vol still on the moon and for understandable reasons. Um, but it just seems like, you know, FX vol is more alive now, right? Given the data dependence, given what's going on with central banks, they're all kind of doing their own thing, needing to address, especially with the euro, right? And being in quite a different situation to maybe the Fed. So I suspect FX vol does stay elevated whilst it got a bit rich and has started to correct. Um, I don't see it having a ton of downside. So probably a buy, being a buyer of dips in FX vol probably does make sense going forward. Yeah. Um, so moving on, I mean, before we move on to, uh, you know, some of the other stuff, commodities, I don't know if you want to call it one, but crypto, some people look at crypto like they look at commodities. Uh, what are you guys thinking on, on the commodities, uh, on the crypto side of things? I mean, obviously had a massive flush out, like bloodbath, uh, is it, is it, I mean, Darius, we'll start with you, right? Is it just the kind of high beta risk asset now? Is it going to act as a, a bit of a lead indicator out of all of this? Because sometimes people say that crypto kind of leads us into the bear and leads us out of it as well, because it's so forward looking. What are your thoughts on crypto? 100%, man. I, I agree with you. I agree with uh, the view that crypto has historically been a leading indicator, particularly Bitcoin. Um, I have a view that it's the most freely traded asset that we have available to us. Um, so it's, you know, it's a lot less um, susceptible to, you know, kind of, um, you know, some of the institutional constraints or flows uh, that tend to be um, a lot less responsive to things like changes in the liquidity cycle or the growth cycle. Um, so just kind of putting some numbers around that, like, um, 
you go back to the highs of, of a S&P 500 in, in September of 2018, you know, Bitcoin preceded that high with its own high about nine months before that. And even this high in January of 22, Bitcoin preceded by a couple of months. Now, the one thing I will say is on the downside, you're talking about a bottom, Bitcoin doesn't have nearly as much of a leading indicator, it's uh, properties or principles um, as it does at the highs. You know, Bitcoin bottomed, I want to say like a week within the lows of December 18 and March of 2020. So um, it's not exactly the, the most, um, uh, not, ne not necessarily thing you should be anchoring on at a bottom, but certainly uh, when you're talking about the reduction, the inflection in the liquidity cycle to the downside, it's much more of a leading indicator. Um, in our opinion, Bitcoin is likely, unlikely to have seen its ultimate lows. Um, if that's based on our view that the stock market broadly, risk assets broadly, have likely not seen their ultimate lows. Um, obviously, things that are probably more sensitive to duration, you know, maybe they have less downside than things that are more tethered to the cyclical economy, cyclical sectors mm -hmm. and style factors from this point forward in terms of the market having to price in a recession, likely will uh, underperform. But certainly, I think, you know, something like crypto, Bitcoin, et cetera, um, probably is a lot more downside from here just as a function of the liquidity cycle, you know, deepening into a growth cycle, deep downturn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Andreas? Uh, let me provide you with a little story here because uh, I left investment banking uh, during Q4 last year and it was written in my contract in the bank that I worked for that I couldn't own crypto. So the minute I left the door, I basically bought either uh, Solana and a, and a bit of Bitcoin. And I think it was the actual day of the peak. So I basically left the door in the investment bank, bought the stuff and then it, it, it all started sliding. Uh, but um, by the end of the day, I agree with uh, Darius conclusion. Um, since it is the most freely traded assets, I agree with that conclusion as well. It is also the asset with the highest beta to the liquidity cycle. Uh, mm -hmm. And therefore, um, until we get a clearer signal that the liquidity cycle is turning, I think that's a 2023 story. Uh, I would stay on the short side of that trade as well. So basically, the signal to buy crypto is when you dump your loans, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> What about you, Tony? I know, I know you dipped your toes into crypto as well, didn't you, Tony? But I think you were pretty quick to get out as well. Is yeah, right? I've made a couple of donations to crypto this year. And I'm <laughs> done. I've, I've reached my allotment of crypto donation. Um, I, I see it as a levered bet on risk assets right now. And I, I, when I look at the chart against the overlay of the narrative, you know, with the laser eyes up at the top and the best inflation hedge in the world, and now we've got headline inflation, I mean, nothing seems more prone to me to a round trip to 10K than Bitcoin. That, that's literally the only view that I have. Not, nothing spectacular. Appreciated. Brent, come on, you must have something on Bitcoin. I, yeah, I got plenty on this. Uh, <laughs> I, I, had a, I had an interesting conversation with a guy from an exchange recently. And, uh, and I think this rings true of a lot of companies because there's this adoption phase that seems to be pushed Right. And I think that in traditional finance, there there's a struggle to innovate or to bring anything new to the table. Um, like when I kind of came up through banks, like everything was like it was the electronification of all assets. Right. Like options can trade electronically and you can VWAP stocks and all this kind of stuff. Right. And and now the only way that people feel that they can innovate, I think, in a lot of ways is like, well, we're we're, we're doing crypto like that's our innovation. So there's this demand or there's this drive to supply people with this crypto innovation. But I don't think there's that killer app or that reason to uh, to actually adopt it, right? Like I think maybe we want to get into it on a speculative as uh, through a speculative lens, and there's a lot of people, smart people, focused on it. But what's the reason other than speculation really to kind of get into it? I think that 
that to me is still the problem, right? Like that killer app or that reason to really for large adoption, I still feel like isn't there. Um, and I think so- that's a great point. Like everyone wants to be part of a secular growth story and no one wants to be part of a secular decline like we've seen in financial markets for like how many years, right? So I get that. And that, that's partly why there's so much brain drain out of ex-finance mm-hmm. people, <laughs> ex-tradfi into crypto. And, and a lot of them are, you know, having some trouble right now. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a very good point. I mean, um, you know, it's not an inflation hedge though, right? People who call it inflation hedge is utter bollocks, right? It's a, it's a monetary debasement hedge. And those are different things, right? So monetary debasement is when the Fed is not tightening, they are bloody loose and they are getting looser, right? And that often ties in with asset price inflation, which is why people see it as an inflation hedge, right? When you have actual inflation, and the prices of real assets like commodities are going to the moon and, and you've got tightening of liquidity, crypto's toast. And, and we flagged this last quarter and you know we didn't see the whole credit crisis thing going on. Obviously that, that accelerated things, but you know I, I've been banging the drum about being hedged using optionality. There's a very liquid options market in crypto. It's not hard to trade it. You know, I've been banging on about being hedged since we broke around 50K, I think, on Bitcoin. I agree with Darius's view that we probably don't see a bottom until we're closer to the stock market bottom. Um, does that mean we see 12K on Bitcoin? Maybe. I don't know. It's hard to put a price target on it. But I do think in the super short term, we're talking one to two months, if the market doesn't roll over, I'm saying the general macro risk asset market doesn't roll over, there is scope because of this Ethereum catalyst for crypto to have another little go to the upside, right? I don't think Bitcoin's going to go gangbusters, but some of your layer, other layer ones like Solana, ETH, they might have another 30% or something in them before they ultimately get dragged down with the rest of the market, right? So that's kind of how I'd play it from the tactical side, maybe own some optionality that does well in two, three months, 30% higher, but don't, don't just sit there with a massive allocation because you, you'll probably get hurt at some point. Yeah. I also feel like there's still a big, uh, I don't call it regulatory risk here, but uh, I don't think that we all know where the bodies lie still. You know, like Coinbase, two weeks ago, people were like, this thing might go belly up, right? So I don't know what the ramifications of all that, but as far as like transparency into what is actually happening, ironically, I feel like crypto is the least transparent because there's no regulation and there's a lot of bad actors in a way and you just don't know what that exogenous effect of a of a coinbase or somebody else having major problems you don't you don't know what that is though mm. and the whole tether debate and blah 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 I, i'm cognizant that andreas is gonna have to leave us in about eight minutes so i'm gonna jump the the vol market discussion for a bit later because me and brent are probably gonna have more to say on that so before andreas has to go i want to kind of fast forward to a world where the fed has pivoted okay so life after the Fed pivot, right? You know, first of all, if everyone expects, there's two questions here, right? If everyone expects the policy pivot and it's getting priced into rates markets, right? Why can't the stock market bottom already be in? Okay, so that's first question, right? If markets priced in the pivot already, can equities just rally on the back of that knowledge that we're gonna get our pivot so we don't need to crash, okay? And then secondly, once we do get, say say you agree that we've got the pivot and the Fed is done, right? What are you buying with both hands, basically? And we're going to start start that with Andreas. 
Well, I, I think first of all, um, it's almost unimaginable to have a profound and deep recession without tighter financial conditions than what we have right now. So the Fed will need to do more short term. Um, and they will need to do more than what is priced in very short term. I, th I still think that's the case. They tried to make that case yesterday uh, with a lot of speakers out uh, saying the exact same as I just did. Um, and therefore, they're basically trying to, to send a signal to the markets to try and, and, um, and tighten financial conditions. So they want demand destruction. They want wealth destruction, secondly. Mm -hmm. um, and that's still the case, uh, unless inflation drops to say five, six percent at least. Um, so I guess it's a very bad idea to pee against the wind, and that's exactly what you do if you try to battle the Fed on this. Right. So you're saying the rates market's wrong, basically, right? They're they're, they're not pricing an aggressive enough Fed. Basically. Not not very short term. Um, yeah. 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 And then so then what? But then let's fast forward to the end of the when the pivot is when the Fed has done enough. What are you buying? Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Kathy uh, Woods, um, also because I'm deeply underwater in my position in that ETF. Uh, but I actually think that uh, the Kathy Woods Innovation ETF will perform again in such a scenario. Okay. Okay. Cool. Darius, will you chime in? Yeah, no, this is, a, this is one of the better questions. I mean, these are all been fantastic questions, by the way. You're doing an excellent job, man. Um, you know, it's a fair question. I don't necessarily disagree with the premise. The only thing I would have is, is you know, at forty one hundred on the S and P, you know, what are we pricing in? I mean, I understand that you know this, this concept that the Fed has pivoted is priced into rate markets, but is that a catalyst for continued you know upswing in, in stocks and then by and by extension broader risk assets? I mean, surely we're not pricing in an earnings recession or an actual recession uh, at these valuations because we haven't really seen any significant haircut to earnings estimates or GDP estimates. So that's not what they're pricing in. So are they pricing in the recovery in the economy and earnings on the other side of the pivot? Perhaps, but that's probably not something we're going to see into the second half of 2023, or maybe even the first half of 2024. And mm -hmm. I'm not of the view that this, this stock market, that this, 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 you know, this collection of market participants has the ability to discount that far in the future. I mean, mm -hmm. after all, you go back to January, at the highs in January, this is the same you know, collection of market participants that thought growth would be above trend this year. And that the Fed would only hike rates two or three times in 2022. I mean, six months ago, think about how wrong that statement is. That, that those, those expectations are now today. So, to, you know, to, to tell me that the stock market today is pricing in the recovery of the second half of 2023, I'm, I'll laugh in the face of anyone. Uh, that's a very, very good point. Very good. Yeah. Point. Yeah. 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 Tony. You know, this is the, the, the pivots are tricky for me because we're, you know, kind of planning a couple of moves ahead of the Fed and I can barely keep up with, you know, trading off of their last move. So I, I, I guess my general thoughts are that, you know, their pivot is, in my opinion, I, I think it's going to be kept in check by the commodity markets still. You know, I, I still think that that we are in a scenario where we could easily see, you know, oil back above one hundred ten dollar natural gas, super tight energy um, markets and headline inflation not dipping much below eight or 10 percent and really giving the Fed a headache in terms of being able to pivot at all right mm -hmm. into easing rates. You know, I do think that we'll see some weaker data, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that the energy prices are going to continue to be you know, a political hot button and something that the Fed and the administration are just going to have a really tough time outrunning. So when you say pivot to me, 
you know, it's hard for me to even get there. You know, I, I do see how the economy could certainly weaken to a point that the Fed is going to, you know, the markets are going to price in an easing cycle. But mm-hmm. I, it's too far ahead in the future for me to think, um, you know, economically. I, I can't I can't make that many chess moves ahead on the table. I just can't. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just a case of like, think about the, the way the yield curve rolls over. Yeah. That, that that date just keeps getting rolled, basically. So, yeah. so the steepness of the easing stays as it is. But we just don't get it in December because inflation doesn't roll over fast enough. So as you approach December, they just roll that date three months. Right. And, and, and then and when it, it finally comes, yeah, you're done with the rates and you're, we're going to need to ease because the world's not a great place. Maybe that's right. Exactly. So it's a kick the can thing. And who knows yeah. if the pivot happens? That's kind of the way I'm looking at it. And I'm way less experienced and, and uh, talented at, at you know, gauging the Fed than anybody on this call, certainly so. But don't don't sell yourself short, mate. We're all, we're all trying Not to puzzle all, this man. one out. Uh, Brent, any anything to add on on these points? I I would actually I would just reflexively go for that kind of I don't, whatever else called is the arc basket as well, just because I think the short cover there on a pivot, you know, as a, from a trading perspective, a short term perspective, is where you get the most juice. Uh, just a scramble to cover those shorts, and also I think it just leads to ability the ability to sort of price you know some of these things. I think that's been a lot of the problem here is that. Because you don't know that the, you don't know what the rate of interest rate changes are going to be or what interest rates are going to be that the speculative tech has gotten hit the worst, and so to me that seems like we'll recover kind of the fastest at least in the very short term. Yeah, right. I mean, I, 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 go on, Tony. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to add, like you know, that that Brent makes a great point, like you know, about grabbing arc and about how that could perform. You know, if we start pricing in, you know, less economic growth, some bit bout of deflation, of course, all that stuff can come back to life. But it seems like, you know, the investor class hasn't changed from, you know, buying that dip. You know what I mean? If you look at the data, there's more, you know, there's still more fun flows into technology on this dip with, you know, the technology subsectors down 20 and 25 percent on the year. Yeah. Portfolio managers are still more than willing to bet on this stuff to come back to life. So that's why I just question myself whether there's going to be a real bid you know, if it dislocates lower again, or first everybody's going to have to get out of that because they certainly yeah. aren't buying energy on this dip. They're shorting it, right? And they're certainly, you know, definitely buying the big stocks on sale or the big tech stocks on sale and hoping that they recover. So I don't know. It's just, it's tricky for me to, to, to feel this all out. I just wanted to mention that point. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, um, the only thing I'd add is, you know, you would have thought in the latest bounce, that arc would outperform right you've had crypto rip hard you've had long bonds rip hard that should be the perfect setup for arc to outperform and actually the nasdaq is shitting all over it yeah so just today, just today is the first day it's up five percent today the arc and, and obviously there's a bunch of stocks in there no good but yeah yeah because so i brought that chart up before i said this and i was like uh-oh yeah. <laughs> i think 50 yeah, 50 <laughs> Sorry. Price yeah. action sucks. You would have been better off buying bonds, right? Like yeah, yeah. The mark is where I, it was four weeks ago. I think there's an element of quality. People wanting quality tech, right? So the mega caps are fucking bulletproof. They've shown their earnings. So people are still a bit nervous to buy the crappy quality, even though it's like arguably got the highest beta to the recovery. But jury's still out whether this is a real recovery or just a bear market squeeze, right? So unless the market really feels like okay, the bottom's in. Yes, then ARK's just going to re-rate and go from 50 to 80 in a heartbeat, right? But because the, I'd say the broader community probably does think this is a bear market rally, 
then maybe you're more comfortable chasing the high quality tech. And that's how I rationalize the latest bit of price action, basically. You know? And then one thing I would add is just, you know, we can't be too sure that it's all people as well, right? We've seen a pretty substantial decline in realized volatility in the last month, you know, month and a half. And so you're obviously going to get the ball controlled community back engaged with equities, unwinding a lot of the short exposure that they've had throughout the year. Um, and so that's kind of perpetuating some of the squeeze as well. Very true. Yeah, we've been talking about that with our subscribers a lot. Like, as Realize Vol comes down, the systematic community is just basically passively being forced to address their underweights and buy, right? And that's providing a almost artificial bid to the market where fundamentals might be not that great. But yeah, that, that stops the market from dropping in the short term, which we may see that throughout the summer, basically, right? You know, Good. So, yeah, yeah. It's because, you know, everyone buggers off on holiday, Realize Vol continues to stay low then this, this buying continues. Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay. All right, great. So before we wrap up, just want to kind of delve a bit into the vol markets, right? So another asset class that's kind of at the forefront of everyone's minds, volatility, people use that to kind of uh, park in their books as a bit of a hedge, given that we've been quite bearish for a while. Obviously, we've got Brent here, who's all over the options market. I mean, so first question then, Brent, is, you know, is equity vol just a useless hedge? Or do we expect a better performance <laughs> from equity volume in the second half? Uh, I think by and large, the answer to that is probably yes. I mean, we've said it and some people that are extremely smart have also sort of echoed this, that I think unless you have major credit issues, defaults and the like, that you're probably not going to get like that 60 handle VIX or you know whatever that may be. And mm -hmm. so the idea that we'll just keep grinding lower if there's a sell-off, um, I think that is also what the market feels because, you know, there was this idea that you just start selling puts basically as the market kind of goes down and you can sell that, that tail, um, that tail risk maybe. So, so you want to maybe be short the, some deltas, but not necessarily long, a lot of Vega, if that, if that makes sense. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, we were pitching at the, in the last Q, Q2 round table that the way to be hedged was put spread collars, right? Mm -hmm. It was a short vol, short delta trade. Because we weren't that convinced that Vol was going to have this massive spike, but we did think the market was headed lower. And the, the focus was on hedges that would carry themselves well. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's exactly what we saw, right? As the market sold off into April, May, June, you didn't see the spike in VIX above 40. In fact, 35 was a struggle to get through, right? And so I kind of rationalized that with the idea that you know, people were quite well hedged. They'd been using put spreads to hedge themselves like I had been doing. That meant the dealer community wasn't caught short loads of vol on the way down. So they didn't need to reach for vol. And then we got down to that 36 area. The timing around that was near quarter end, where it was this massive position from the JP Morgan collar trade that we'd mentioned before that was actually providing a lot of support to the market, right? Going forwards is a tricky one. I mean, I think you need more complacency in the market for vols to really have a spike, okay? So you need that everyone to throw in the towel on vol, not want to buy it. You need some of the systematic vol sellers to get bigger and more comfortable selling again, mm -hmm. you know? And, and even if we do go back down, if we, re if we retest 3,800, no one's going to shit themselves, right? It's, if we break the lows and see a 35 handle, then we'll see some acceleration and we'll see some potential volatility. But so I do think in that first 10% down from here, and I know Tony's about to jump in with something, but that first 10% down, I don't think Vol's going to go crazy. It's that next 10%, that, that, that next leg down that's going to get exciting if and, if and when it happens, basically. Tony? 
Yeah, I was just going to say that as from a tactical trading perspective here, I like the idea of buying volatility or, or you know, as a hedge, just because of that, what you just said, like, I, I, I'm a buyer of the S&P dip, I still think that, um, you know, we're well set up to work higher before the market goes lower. So, I, you know, I'm just think when I think out loud, and I'm on calls with family offices and things, and they say, you know, they're thinking about how do we weather you know, this short term storm, if natural resources dip back from here. And I feel like a good option is to be long some volatility if you don't have the intention that you're going to be turning around and puking your portfolio if it goes lower. So I feel like there's just some there's some, uh, you know, there's some tactical usefulness to be in long vol here from that perspective, if that's fair. I think to your to your point that there are there are single stocks which could fall precipitously and quite violently. So if you want to get long vol, you know, you could be very specific with what you're buying here, maybe as as opposed to trying to just say I'm gonna buy S P, you know, vol. Like you can probably reshort the arc basket here at some point or or some of these other names that, you know, we're just a function of short covering, you know, that that still don't have a, a business case, you know. Right. No, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I kind of echo that point, actually, Brent, because the problem with the S&P vol is that that's quite a diversified basket, right? Yep. And, and you've, you've got so many people looking at the move index and it's pulled back from its high. But when it was at its high, VIX was doing nothing and the move was like ripping. And people were like, why is the VIX not following? And, and the thing I keep saying to people, well, a high move means high rates vol, right? How does that translate to equity vol? Usually within rotation, Right. Rotation doesn't mean the S&P is going to suddenly start realizing 40, right? Sectors are going to do a lot, but the actual broader index doesn't have to move as much just because weight vol is high. And I think that environment, given the Fed's data dependence, given the removal of forward guidance, it's going to keep rates vol up. Doesn't necessarily mean S&P is going to move like a madman, right? I, I agree that the fact that we're really data dependent now and we've got this Fed pivot that's somewhere out on the calendar that's this mysterious, we don't know if it's even happening, tricky thing. Mm -hmm. I think it makes sense to be long volatility. Yeah, yeah. I think picking up vol in places where which are closer to the forefront, to the to the to, to the front line, yeah. like rates vol. Rates yeah. vol, I agree, right? Probably, probably FX vol as well, if it gets a little bit cheaper, right? But I just, I'm just struggling to see the VIX in the short term being the way to play it, basically, right? You know? the, the VIX intraday high, I believe, is still back in January. So it didn't even take out a high after the Russian invasion in February. I mean, you know, on a, this is an intraday basis. So I, I actually want to ask Darius about something here because we were looking yesterday at the two-year yields and uh, that was a almost a, a two standard deviation move depending on what time frame you're looking at in, in yields and the move index as you mentioned you know back out is back higher than the FOMC right so if there was a fed pivot in there or not it just looks like from my you know maybe more naive interpretation here that that the the rate vol is coming back up and oh, yeah. our 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 thing has been look that move index and this is a gross oversimplification of the whole macro landscape but if that doesn't come down then equities are not going to rally right and so now the move is shifting back up yeah as you mentioned it's not at a july high and i understand there's a whole bunch of factors in there but just you know from a, again a gross oversimplification it seems like the rate vols are starting to pick back up and there's like the bond market suddenly realizing like uh oh and and now we're starting to get some some shakes there so is that a fair interpretation of how I'm reading this? And and do you agree with that sort of negative equity sentiment if that's if that move index is going higher? 
Yeah, no, you, you, I think your, your oversimplification is the exact way to think about it, quite frankly. So, uh, starting a macro service tomorrow, then. <laughs> As you should. Uh, no, I mean, look, the, the, so we obviously yesterday we got a significant amount of, of the Fed heads, Evans, Daly, Bullard, and, uh, and, and, and the Mester came out and effectively pushed back against the market interpretation of the dovish pivot. As a function of that, we saw a full 25 basis point basically priced into terminal Fed funds rate expectations in a single day. day. Now, what's shocking is that, you know, we saw the impact in the dollar. We saw the impact in rates. We saw the impact in, in, in interest rate volatility, but we didn't necessarily see that impact uh, in risk assets, particularly through the lens of equity volatility and credit spreads. So in our opinion, going back to, you know, with the session we just previously had, you know, there's very clearly a non-fundamental uh, fundamentally oriented investor class that is, you know, clearly pushing back into equities, you know, this summer, uh, particularly as, you know, we're in this um, kind of thinly traded, you know, liquidity period. So um, it kind of creates the opportunity for more gappy price action this fall to the downside, to the extent we're right on our views that the Fed's going to be more hawkish than consensus expects, growth's going to be worse than consensus expects, and earnings are going to be worse think it's as it expects. You know, you really do create this opportunity for some gappy price action, which is very different than what we saw throughout this year. I mean, one thing that's been super bizarre this this year is the, you know the decline in the VBIX fixed ratio, which is something I I like to track and as part of my uh, market indicators. I mean, you know, typically what happens when the VBIX fixed ratio is going down in the bear market, it's usually because the VIX is spiking faster than uh, the VIX is spiking. But it's more or less been the opposite this year. The VIX is going down faster than the VIX, it's going down. So in our opinion, that's an indication of, you know, the sort of institutional finance community that that does have variable leverage and variable exposure to the markets. Um, they've taken down a lot of risk and, and, and you know, we've, we've seen them take down a tremendous amount of risk going back uh, to the early part of the spring. So, um, you know, you're not necessarily going to have to see them reach for ball products, but you certainly do still have a tremendous amount of passive, um, passive interest in these, in these equity markets that could change. I mean, you know, we're having this conversation in you know, three or four months from now, we could be talking about, hey, the U.S. looks like it's actually heading into a real recession, not just a mere technical recession. And oh, by the way, the Fed is still out the lunch as it relates to its policy guidance. So that's the same exact setup that we saw in Q418 that created, you know, such a sharp decline, you know, coming off those November highs into December. Right. And that, and that year, I've been looking at that analog a little bit because that year started off. I mean, they think this year sold off worse, but we sold off in the start of 2018, right all summer, and then it was like could not catch a bid into Christmas Eve. And that was the other interesting point. You know, these major market lows often come at quarterly options expiration, which usually the FOMC is right around that time, but usually get some kind of big fiscal monetary support for the market, right? The the Fed put comes in, um, and that's the total opposite, right, of of what's happening here. So you know. Uh, Where's the juice, I guess, is what I'm asking. Look, I mean, I've done a tremendous amount of work on this stuff. You know, you don't typically see the market bottom in advance of the inflection liquidity cycle, usually on a median basis. And this is looking at the 17 bear markets we've had going back to uh, the, the onset of the Great Depression. You know, typically bottoms a month after. Um, if you're looking mm -hmm. at something like an inflationary bear market, you typically bottom three months after the inflection liquidity cycle. And right now, markets are pricing the inflection and liquidity cycle and this is what markets are pricing consensus, you know, as, as, a, as a sort of a, a March 2023 event. So, um, you know, could we be, you know, could we just be sucking people into another lower high here? Um, that seems to be kind of the general consensus amongst our panel. And we're coming at this and attacking this problem set from a variety of different angles. So I, 
I feel a lot of, uh, I have a lot of confidence, you know, with, uh, with uh, being a good company here. That, um, that piece of research about the, how you looked at the liquidity cycle inflection point, market bottom timing around that. Amazing. Bow down to that, mate. That was so good. Oh, thank you, man. I, I found that very insightful. Um, and just on your last point about VIX collapsing, yeah, that, that is quite an interesting dynamic and not one we really have seen for quite some time. If I can't really remember a time like that, but the way I've tried to rationalize why the VIX have been getting slammed, right, is because, you know, what is VIX, right? It's the implied volatility of VIX. So if there's demand for VIX options, that's going to trade higher. And, and if there isn't, then it's going to trade lower. Or if there's supply of VIX options, you're going to trade lower, right? So if you think about it from the perspective of people who are looking at the vol market and saying, well, there's so much policy uncertainty, there's so much economic volatility, stuff like that. It's been quite easy to put a floor on the VIX at 20 since December. And I think me and Brent were on his YouTube channel saying, yeah, VIX is floored at 20 for the foreseeable future, right? So if that is the general consensus, right, it makes sense that investors are willing to underwrite the VIX and sell VIX puts. Whereas before, the VIX puts would have been bought, right? VIX puts would have been bought when the VIX spikes, you buy puts, the VIX always falls back down, you make a load of money, it's safe. There's a demand, natural demand that you have when the VIX goes higher to come in and buy puts on the VIX, and that brings a bid to the VVIX, basically. Obviously, the call bid's always kind of there from the institutional hedging flow on calls on VIX, but what I think's really changed is the put flow in the VIX. We're used to see a lot of institutional demand for VIX puts. I think that's flipped to supply where people are more comfortable selling VIX puts. No one really wants to buy them because no one really sees the VIX going significantly below 20 in the foreseeable future. And that's the change in dynamic that I think has kept the lid on the VIX. Yeah. I think too, some of it's just lack of demand. I mean, you know, there's no, there's no reason to bid up that out of the money VIX call anymore. There's, I don't think there's a lot of demand to buy deep out of the money puts. It hasn't worked. You've probably degrossed at this point, you know, if you're a bigger fund. And so, you know, kind of to your point, it's a supply and demand issue. And we're like, and, and there's just not that demand to say, look, I'm worried about an 80 VIX right now. Um, I mean, there, there has been some buying activity in October and November VIX expiries in those crazy strikes in like true. the 70, 80 area. I think that's the biggest open interest right now on VIX options. Yeah, October. But they're low premium options because they're miles away. So right. there's not much meat on them. Um, but yeah, that, that demand, like I said, that institutional proper tail risk demand is always going to be there to some extent. Um, but like I said, I think the absolute sort of uh, immediate VVIX levels are more driven by the more close to the money action within the VIX complex. Uh, and I think there's been a change in that dynamic, basically. Yeah. All right, this has been awesome. Um, but yeah, so before we wrap up, you know, we obviously asked Andreas um, and he, he said ARC and kind of Brent's weighed in there. Well, what, what, what did TG and DD think about what you're going to buy with both hands when this thing finally turns basically and i know i know we're probably not there yet but just kind of what is on your radar and what do you think is the thing that you will want to be buying when when we see this thing turning so let me uh let me oh go ahead go on fight it out fight it out i was no, gonna no, go no, first no. I, I actually want to go first because i don't and i will go first because i'm the short i'm the shorter term trader iman so I, i'm already in this trade Right. Okay. Now, yeah. I just. Well, I know what you're buying. Fans. I know what you're buying, my fans. Yeah, you know what I'm buying. <laughs> I bought natural resources. I've stayed long. I bought a couple of stocks like uh, the fertilizer names that have pulled into support. I bought Yeti. I bought things where the chart looks good. 
I covered my retail short. I covered my builder short. I covered my queue short. So I'm already in the retracement side of that rally, no matter what the Fed does or the pivot. So I'm still playing for a move to the 200-day moving average, and that's my trade right now. So I'm already in it. That's why I thought I'd speak but first. That's all before, I have to say. Before yeah. we go to Darius, who's more longer term, when are you going to reshort the Nasdaq though? Are you because you're talking about tactical bounce right now, right? So are you looking yeah. to resell tech at some point? Yeah, you know, maybe somewhere when it's flirting around, it's 200 day moving averages. I'll, I'll you know, t- depending on what the world looks like. Yeah, you know, we're still a couple, probably eight, 10 percent away from that, though. And time frame on that, you think within the next month? Yeah, I think I think, you know, I, I still think we see a continuation of this summer rally and then into the fall. We find a place to fail. I don't know when or how, but so the, the, the S&P is only down, I think, for this year, 10 percent now. And the Q's, I think, are down, what, 12. So. So that's basically getting back to flat year to date, though, right? Uh, I mean, I know it depends on exactly what you're trading, but for all the shock and awe. Yeah, yeah, it's not crazy. It's not crazy. I will be licking my lips to short this market if it gets back up there. Anyway, Darius, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think, you know, so I think it really depends on the timing, um, you know, of the bottom, right? Like if we, if we think that June was the durable low, then we have a long way to go till we actually get to the bottom of the growth cycle. So the kinds of assets you want to buy uh, in a in a positive liquidity environment, but declining growth environment, are generally your defensive, you know, sectors and style factors in the equity market within the credit market. Obviously, you want to be exposed to risk, but more taking IG risk as opposed to to high yield risk. Um, but you know, if you're thinking about, hey, maybe we're just in a bear market rally that would ultimately fail, you know, into the fall and maybe even perhaps you know throughout the winter. Um, then ultimately, the ultimate lows, they you know, that may be um, on the other side of that. You know, there's going to be a very significant uh, bear market in the dollar um, throughout 2023 um, at some point because one, the Fed pivot, but two, the rest of the world's going to start to recover. And those two uh, factors have historically been extremely negative for the dollar, which itself is coming off some very asymmetric levels. So the playbook is pretty simple. You know, you want to be long international and EM relative to DM in US. You want to be long uh, cyclicals, you know, materials, energy, um, et cetera, uh, you know, like Tony's fertilizer stocks. Um, in lieu of the tech NASDAQ crowd. Uh, and then you want to be long commodities. So, um, you know, you really have to have a, a good thought process around, okay, if we've seen the lows in June, maybe have some portion of your expect, uh, allocation to kind of, you know, playing it on the long side from a defensive perspective. But if you're in the camp that we have not seen the lows, this is a fadeable bear market rally to, you know, who knows what the ultimate level will be, then you, uh, you have to kind of think about putting on the short dollar playbook sometime, let's call it three to six months from now. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, excellent. And so just one word before we close out. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for everyone for coming. I mean, it's been another fantastic and enlightening discussion for me. And I think this is going to have to be a quarterly thing, right? It's just too good to not do it. Um, But, you know, in a word, um, is the bottom in yet? DD, I know what you're going to say, but is the bottom in yet? (laughs) No. No. TG. No, no, but it's in for now for me. One word, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm operating <laughs> on an hourly basis. <laughs> and Brent? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I think we're pretty much in consensus agreement that the bottom is not in. But buy stocks. Be, care- be careful yeah. out there. <laughs> and be careful out there and make sure you use optionality, right? And if you want to learn to use optionality, check out one of my options trading boot camps, which Darius knows all about because he was on the last one. Right. And your and your trading signals, man. You've been uh, you and Tony have been absolutely uh, masterful 
and trading some of these uh, these these sort of term swings in the market. So uh, just hats mm -hmm. off to both of you. Hats off to you, Brent. You're uh, you were the godfather of a lot of this stuff that we're looking at, man. So we appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. I'm, I'm marching to battle with this crew any day, Imran. So say the word. You know, you know, on uh, YouTube, some people have called us the Macro Avengers. Yeah, I like that. Can I be Hulk? There's no doubt who's Hulk. There's yeah. no doubt who's Hulk. Yeah. <laughs> <That's my default. laughs> uh, although I think I'm going to end up being Ant-Man, which I'm not a fan of. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you yourself a new nickname. <laughs> All right, guys. Peace out. Nice one. Thanks for coming. Great job, Thanks, Imran. Guys. Take care, fellas. Yeah. Good to see you, Brad. Good to see you, Darius. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. To learn more about Options Insight and our trading community, please visit us at www.options-insight.com. Or you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and also follow us on Twitter at options underscore insight. Until next time, thanks. Mm -hmm.